the passage from the Bible that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. We're going to read the passage in just a moment, Luke 20, beginning in verse 20. But before we do that, I want to just say something uh, to those of you uh, who do not consider yourselves to be Christians. Um, you're in this room, um, or you're listening online this morning. Um, not a Christian, but for some reason you're listening. And um, probably a lot of what's said is going to be stuff you don't agree with. Maybe you're uncomfortable with this whole service. Um, I just want to say something to you, first of all. I want to say welcome, and thank you so much for listening. Um, you are an honored guest here. It's awesome to be with you. Thank you for being here. Um, we're going to spend a few minutes listening to and talking about some things that Jesus said a long time ago in response to a question that he was asked. And I hope that as you listen and consider what he said... I hope that a couple things will, will happen for you. I hope it has a couple of different effects on you. Number one, I, I hope that you'll see how Jesus' words point out a great deficiency in us, like in people who claim to worship God. I hope you'll see today, you know, if you look around you, if you look at the church, the people who claim to worship God, and you see lots of deficiencies in people who claim to worship God, I I hope you'll see that Jesus um, says some things that let us know that he agrees with you. I hope you'll see that there's common ground between you and Jesus that you may not have expected to be there. The second thing is I hope that common ground that you might find with yourself and with Jesus leads you to be curious about what else Jesus said and what other common ground you might have with him that you might not have expected to have. That you'll be tempted to uh, just pick up a Bible for yourself and dig in and see just exactly who Jesus is and why he is so important because he has become everything to us because of who he is, how he's made up for our obvious and painful deficiencies. That's exactly what we're going to talk about right now. So if you've made your way to Luke 20, um, find verse 20. And then in honor of God and his word, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word. Luke 20, beginning in verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So if you're just joining us, we're at a point in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in the last week of his life. He's made a claim to be the one who speaks authoritatively for God, which puts him in direct conflict with the existing religious authorities. So they're trying to catch him. They're trying to trap him. Verse 21, so they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak truth, excuse me, you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? 
But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Father, I ask you now to give your people praise-inspiring and heart-inflaming gifts through a close examination of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. We love you. We thank you in his beautiful name. Amen. All right, please be seated. The interaction that we just read about is a pretty famous interaction. The words that Jesus spoke uh, in reply to their question are some of the more famous words that he spoke, known beyond just Christian circles. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Okay? Most of our time is going to be spent talking about what he meant by render to God the things that are God's. See, that's the extra part that he throws in. That's the part that they could not have expected. They thought they were just talking about a coin and what to do with it. And then he throws in this extra phrase. What does that mean? What does that mean for you? And what does that mean for me? But it will be good to take a moment first before we get there and just appreciate the dilemma that they were trying to put him in and look at the the very tight space that they thought they had him cornered into with this question. It does seem like they put him in a no-win situation where whatever answer he gives to their question is going to put him in a lot of trouble. They ask him if the Jewish nation should be paying the required tribute to Rome's Caesar. Rome is ruling over the Jewish people at this time. Think about his options. Jesus says, yes, it is lawful to pay the tax, the tribute to Caesar. He gets himself in trouble with the hardcore nationalists. The hardcore nationalists of his own nation that have set their hopes upon him as their political messiah to overthrow Rome. And restore the kingdom to Israel. So if he says, yes, it's lawful to pay tribute to Rome, his questioners will see that as a win for them. Because support, his support among the people will erode, which would be very helpful to these religious leaders who want to take him out. But they're fearful of the people and what they will do if they try to take Jesus out. And Having Jesus lose support from among his own people will be expedient for them and good. So if he says yes, that's not going to be good for Jesus. But if he answers the other way, if he says no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, now who is his problem with? Now he's got a problem with Rome. Now he's in their crosshairs and he's a danger to public order. Because he's defied the command of, of Caesar So either way, he answers the question. It's a win for his opponents. He either makes himself a target of the Roman governor or his public support erodes so much that they can do whatever they want with him. So it's a trap. We see that in in verse 20. They pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said. So what's he going to do? 
Well, here's what he does. He goes after the underlying assumption in the question. What's the underlying assumption in the question that they put to him? The underlying assumption in the question is that our, there, is that allegiance or non-allegiance to God is determined by what we do with this coin. That's the underlying assumption. Allegiance or non-allegiance to God is determined by what I do with this. The assumption is that this outward act, what I choose to do with this piece of metal, whether I keep it, whether I give it away, who I give it to, that is a demonstration of my allegiance or non-allegiance to God. Like honoring God or not honoring God is a matter of how I spend this denarius. So in answering the question the way that he does, Jesus rejects the underlying assumption that what we do with this piece of metal is the way that allegiance to God is determined. He separates Rome and God into two distinct categories. He separates Rome from God and how allegiance to each is to be demonstrated. For each of these two categories, Rome and God, he states the proper offering to be given. And here's the principle. In each category, Rome and God give as an offering that which bears its image. Let's take Rome first. Look at this coin. Whose image is on it? Who does it belong to? Whose likeness is stamped on it? Well, Caesar's. All right, well, then give it to him. Now let's consider God. Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's. What does he mean? Well, what has God's image and likeness stamped on it? That's how we tell what belongs to Caesar. The things that bear his image have belonged to him. Well, what do the scriptures teach us about things that are stamped with God's image? Look around you. In all of creation, what has been stamped with the likeness and image of God? What have, what have we been told? Genesis one twenty six. God speaking. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Humans are created in the image after the likeness of God. Mankind, man and woman, you and me, us. The proper offering to give to Rome is that which bears Rome's image, this coin. The proper offering to give to God is ourselves. We're stamped with his image. In the outline for this sermon, I called their question a great question. Yes, it's a, it's a trap question. It's also a, a great question. Why is it a great question? Here's why it's a great question. Because it sets the stage for Jesus to talk about one of the oldest problems that humanity 
has, and one of Israel's greatest problems, maybe the great problem of the nation of Israel. It's a problem that goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, the fourth chapter of the whole Bible. The great problem, the great question, namely this, what kind of an offering do we bring to God? What should a human give him? You may have heard of Cain and his brother Abel, but be a little fuzzy on the details. Cain and Abel were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. We're not told much about them. Um, The main thing we're told about them is the kind of offering that they brought to God. How their offerings differed from each other. And we're told that as, as a result of these differing offerings, Cain killed his brother Abel. He murdered him. The description that we're given of their offerings to God, this is from Genesis 4, the description we're given of their offerings shows us that Cain's offering was given a bit begrudgingly. It it appears that he picked out a few things that he felt like he could do without, and he said, here, God. It was perfunctory. There was some kind of duty toward God, some duty that he owed God, and so he performed it. He gave some things to God. Here's the description that we're given of Cain's offering. This is right from Genesis 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's it. Now, that wouldn't be so bad, perhaps, and we might even find that commendable, except that here's what we read about Abel's offering, his brother. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So here's the picture that we have. Cain brought this indifferent, indefinite offering, just an offering of the fruit of the ground. Nothing special, nothing of special value. Whereas Abel, on the other hand, brought his considered best. The firstborn, the fat portions. Anybody like brisket? What's the best part? He gave away to God the most delicious part, the part that he would have enjoyed the most. He gave that to a God he couldn't see. And we're told about God's response to these contrasting offerings. This is what we're told. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. See, Cain and Abel represent two different approaches to God. We can approach him out of a desire to outwardly comply with some duty that we feel like we have, like check a box, do some rituals, give some money, say a prayer, get baptized, bring your kids to church. Give God an hour on Sunday morning. Get up early. That's one way to approach God. Or we can approach God like we approach a feast. Desire. Eagerness. Clear the calendar. 
eat a lot and then make room for more. Pay whatever the cost is. Pour out your praise for everything you find set before you. Heartfelt engagement. I just want to give you a moment to do some self-reflection. Which of those approaches best describes your approach to God? Perfunctory or eagerness? Cain or Abel? Throughout their history, Israel had been called, on, called out on this question so many times. You, you remember reading the prophets. They just took them to task again and again because they kept performing all their rituals. They had their feast days. They were celebrating. They were fasting. They were doing all these things and saying with their mouths, Yeah, I love God. God is the Lord. We're all for him. But their hearts were far from him. They did not look like him. They did not love him. They were living in ways that were completely contrary to his law even though they said with their lips that God was their great love and Lord. They performed duties. They did not offer their very selves, hearts, minds, souls to God. Just like us, they were stamped with the image of God. They bore his likeness. They bore his image, but they did not give themselves to God. They didn't render to God the things that are gods. They gave some of their money and things, but they didn't give God themselves. And Abel had died a long time ago. Since his death, there had been this long series of Cain's. But when will another Abel come? Someone who actually loves God. Someone who actually loves their neighbor. Someone who's willing to offer their best, their whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength devoted to God. When will that kind of a person come again? The reason that we're spending so much time talking about Cain and Abel while we're studying a passage in Luke 20 where their names are not even mentioned is because what we're seeing happen in front of us here and in the last chapters of Luke is a replaying of the Cain and Abel story. There are a lot of Cains, people content to offer God perfunctory service, very self-interested, represented by the religious leaders. All these Cains gathered around this one Abel, Jesus Christ, the true and greater Abel. the one who brings the entirety of his being to God and offers himself. All these canes surround the true and greater Abel, and the result will be the same. They will murder him in a matter of a couple days. When Jesus confronts them with the words and render to God the things that are God's, he brings our obligation before us all. His words sting us with our failure. We have not given to God the things that are God's. It's not just them. It's not just the people he's talking to. It's really easy to find fault with these religious leaders. But we are a world of Cain's. Some of us might be doing better than others, but 
All of us are bringing actions and rituals to God that are tainted with self-interest and wrong motives. We're stingy in our religion. We're stingy in our giving. We're evaluating other people's religion. We watch each other. We watch the clock. We evaluate performances. We get jealous of each other. We murder each other in our hearts. Yeah, we come to church, but we come begrudgingly. We come out of ritual, often with a a dry and dead and uncaring heart. We'd rather be somewhere else. And all this, we think, is still commendable. We think we bring a, a nice offering to God when we just come. Because look at me. I'm here and everyone else that I know is at home doing other things. I showed up for church. God must be happy with that. No matter what I'm thinking about while I'm here, no matter my attitude or my level of heart engagement, shouldn't God be happy with me that I came while so many others didn't come? These are the the Cain offerings that we bring to God. And do we forget that God... What God requires, the sacrifice that he has regard for, is when a person gives their whole self, represented by Abel, bringing his best portions. Do we forget that since we as human beings have God's image and his likeness stamped on us, that we owe our very selves to him, like all of us? Have we forgotten that the command of God is not, you shall love the Lord your God with a portion of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? but that the command of God is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Do you ever go home from worship a little disappointed with yourself? I'm talking about this service, this irregular tenor of this service. You ever go home a little disappointed with yourself? Longing for more? I do. Actually, pretty frequently. Maybe even most of the time, I go home disappointed and even a little ashamed that I did not bring more to God, that I did not feel more for God. Maybe for maybe for milliseconds or maybe for seconds, we can rise above arcane nature for what seems like a moment of pure enjoyment and delight in God. A, A pure feeling of love for God. And in the next instant, arcane nature drags us back down and plunges our heart back into the deep freeze. And once again, it's all phones and hobbies and friends and fears and food. And that's our world again. That's the experience that I have way too often in worship. Well, what are we going to do with ourselves? Well, even though it might seem counterintuitive, the the 
the point that I just described of getting to that point of saying, what am I going to, what are we going to do with ourselves? What are we going to do with this Cain nature that we have toward God? Even though it might seem counterintuitive, that's exactly the right point to come to because it is just then that Jesus Christ is revealed. When a human being gets to the point with themselves when they know that they don't bring to the table everything that God deserves and they feel guilty and ashamed and disappointed and even despairing because what on earth am I going to do with myself? Just that moment, Jesus is revealed because he is the true and greater Abel. Jesus brings the acceptable offering to God. He brings to God that which God more than deserves, not only by right of ownership, but by right of glory and beauty. Jesus gives to God his entire self. He lays himself on the altar when he goes to the cross. Abel brought a portion of his best. Jesus brought all. Abel offered an animal. Jesus offered himself. Abel brought a sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. He is the true and greater Abel who brings to God the accepted offering himself. Here's the last reason why Jesus is the true and greater Abel. Abel's offering was only for himself. His brother, Cain, remained outside of the grace that came to Abel because of his offering. And Cain became cut off and cursed and a wanderer on the earth. Abel's offering was only for himself. The offering that Jesus gave to God on the cross was for his brother. He gave the offering for his brother. His guilty, apathetic, non-God-loving, mixed heart, self-interested, stingy, cold-hearted brother. He covered his brother's coldness and apathy with his own offering. Jesus is the true and greater Abel because his offering covered his guilty brothers, you and me. Jesus was his brother's keeper. That's why I love him. Just like Abel would have known like what kind of offering Cain was going to bring, he knew his brother's heart. He knew, he, he knew that he would, 
He's just going to bring an average offering. He doesn't really care. This is just all perfunctory for him. He knew that he had a dead heart. And Jesus knows our cold, dead hearts. He knows what kind of offering we bring to God. Way less than God deserves. And instead of despising us and laughing at us, he laid himself down for us a pleasing offering to God so that we too could be accepted by God. That's called love. So, my friend, religion has become something new now. Now it's the declaration that Jesus Christ has been enough in our place and covered our failures. Religion now is free to admit that we are guilty and cold and indifferent. We're rebellious, odorous to God. We're not like God. We're not caring. We're unloving, etc. All these things. But look at him. He is the perfect one. Jesus Christ, not arrogantly perfect, not despising his sorry brothers, but offering his perfections on our behalf in the costliest way possible so that everyone who asks for a part in his offering will be accepted. Give to God the things that are God's. We must. We can't. Jesus has. And he covers his brothers with his offering. He's covered us. He has covered us. And all you have to do to benefit from his offering is admit that you are Cain and he is Abel and embrace him. He loves you. He loves you enough to cover you with his offering. It's okay to go home disappointed in yourself and in awe of the love of Jesus. Let's stand. Father, we are overwhelmed by the love of your perfect son that he would offer himself on our behalf because we, we bring you this half-hearted offering. And Father, we try, but we know our nature. We could never give you what you deserve. You deserve more, so much more. But thank you for freeing us from this feeling of guilt that when we know that we can't be enough and we know we bring you a mixed offering of praise, it's always mixed with sin and self-interest. We know that you do not turn us away. That through Jesus' offering, we are accepted, treated as you treat him, loved as you love him. And so for that reason, we pour out our praise to you, that we've been accepted on Jesus' behalf. And now all is celebration, a celebration of his wonderfulness, including now following in his footsteps, loving life of truth and righteousness in him and because of him. We love you.